to the reading of the Cedar Rapids Gazette for Wednesday, January 24th, 2024. I'm your reader, Janet Griffith. Starting on today's front page, first headline reads, Lawyer, betting probe breached student privacy. Another attorney says agent felt misled in targeting student-athletes. By Aaron Jordan. An attorney for two former Iowa State University football players charged with sports betting violations says Iowa investigators' use of geofencing software on at least one public university campus amounted to a warrantless search that invaded students' privacy. A motion filed this week by Van Plum, a Des Moines lawyer, says a deposition last week by Iowa Division of Criminal Investigation Special Agent Brian Sanger revealed new information about a probe that led to criminal charges against 25 people, including many student-athletes at ISU and the University of Iowa. Special Agent Brian Sanger was given access to a tool that can invade people's privacy, Plum wrote. The motion asks a Story County judge to force state agencies to turn over documents and other materials as part of the ongoing criminal case against Isaiah Lee, a former defensive lineman who left ISU days after being accused in August of wagering against his team. Plum also is representing Ioma Uwazuriki, a former Cyclone football player now playing for the Denver Broncos, who also is facing sports betting charges. Plum said Sanger set up a virtual boundary, or geofence, around a UI residence hall. The software allowed Sanger to see if online betting applications were opened in the dorm and the account numbers in use, the motion states. He initially used Kibana to place a warrantless search around a freshman-sophomore dorm at the University of Iowa to investigate underage gambling without any tips, complaints, or evidence that underage gambling was occurring, Plum alleged. When Sanger asked his DCI supervisors if he could continue the investigation, they said no, according to the motion. Sanger then decided to focus on UI athletic practice facilities, which are restricted to athletes, coaches, and support personnel. People in these positions generally are prohibitive from wagering on their sports. Special Agent Troy Nelson and Assistant Director Dave Jobes gave Sanger permission to continue this investigation, the motion states. Without reasonable cause, the team of special agents targeted more facilities as well as began requesting subpoenas to obtain account information on hundreds of private citizens' private information, which was with also without reasonable cause, Plum wrote. In another motion filed in Story County, Christopher Sandy, an attorney representing ISU wrestler Panero Johnson, charged with identity theft as part of the probe, said DCI Special Agent Mark Ludwig said in a deposition last week he felt misled by his supervisors. According to the motion, they initially said the sports betting probe was focused, focused on sports books, including FanDuel and DraftKings but the criminal charges were filed against student-athletes. Ludwig concluded that DCI conducted an illegal search of Iowa student-athletes and dozens of others' personal online account information because the agency did not obtain a geofence warrant as well as lacked reasonable articulable suspicion to conduct such a search, the motion states. Special Agent Ludwig further testified that he is aware of numerous other special agents at the DCI who share the same belief and have refused to participate in this investigation. Asked Tuesday about claims, the DCI's Jobs said he could not comment on the ongoing case. DCI agents involved in the investigation act as witnesses, and it could be inappropriate to make any comments regarding legal filings or other court proceedings, he said. GeoComply Solutions, Inc., a Vancouver-based company, is a vendor licensed in Iowa and many other states to provide geolocation services to make sure bettors are located in the states where sports betting is legal and other anti-fraud services, according to its website. Kibana is an analytics tool that allows GeoComply users 
to visualize collected data. Plum asks in the motion to have access to policies and procedures put in place when GeoComply software is used for law enforcement purposes instead of regulatory purposes. Although the motion alleges the DCI did warrantless searches, it also mentions information obtained through court subpoenas and search warrants. For example, Plum asked the court to require state officials to turn over a list of hundreds of accounts subpoenaed from FanDuel, DraftKings, or other sports books, as well as all information obtained via a county attorney subpoena or warrant for those accounts. But the question of whether geofence warrants are legal is being considered by judges in other states. In April, the California Court of Appeals ruled a geofence warrant seeking information on all devices in several densely populated areas of Los Angeles were un was unconstitutional, the Electronic Frontier Foundation reported. The court said the warrant was too broad and did not place meaningful restriction on law enforcement officers to determine which accounts would be scrutinized, the foundation reported. The DCI in October 2021 created a sports wagering team of five special agents and one special agent in charge to address the rapid growth in sports betting in Iowa after it was legalized in 2019. In fiscal 2023, when the Iowa and Iowa State investigation happened, the team had 204 cases related to sports wagering or other forms of internet gambling. Regions weigh new bylaws for Mercy IC takeover, based on hospitals' original documents with modifications by Vanessa Miller. A week before Mercy Iowa City's 150-year history comes to an end, with the bankrupt hospital expected to transition to University of Iowa ownership January 31st, Regents will meet today to consider new bylaws for the former Mercy campus to be renamed UI Healthcare Medical Center downtown. The proposed bylaws are based on Mercy Hospital's original documents, but contain modifications necessary to better align with the medical staff bylaws of UI Healthcare, according to Board of Regents documents. Given that the downtown campus will add to UIHC's growing portfolio of clinics and centers statewide, including a new hospital in North Liberty and the main UIHC campus Anstead Family Children's Hospital two miles west of Mercy, the bylaws aim to ensure processes and information sharing between medical staffs at each location are as consistent as reasonably possible. Although the documents don't highlight differences between UIHC bylaws and those proposed for the downtown center, they do stress the university's commitment to maintain an open medical staff at the downtown location and retain existing medical staff privileges. Unlike UIHC's closed staff model requiring providers to be UIHC employees to practice there, Mercy historically has allowed practitioners from private clinics in specialties such as OBGYN, orthopedics, and cardiology to hold medical privileges. Earlier this month, the university reported making job offers to about 1,100 Mercy staff members, such as nurses, receptionists, and food service providers, and to, 50, and to about 53 physicians. Not all the offers were accepted, although specific numbers haven't been made available. Those former Mercy workers will, who do join UIHC will add to its 11,200 strong workforce, although the bylaws are different for the new downtown campus. After the sale is complete, UI Healthcare will operate two hospitals with two separate licenses, according to the Regent documents. Under the pending bylaws, UIHC downtown medical staff will be classified in one of five ways, active staff, associate staff, affiliate staff, consulting staff, or honorary staff. That is, to differ that is different from the five categories of clinical staff outlined in the UIHC bylaws, rules, and regulations. Active clinical staff, emeritus staff, courtesy teaching staff, temporary staff, and house staff. Active clinical staff at UIHC either have a tenure-track clinical track associate or fellow associate or visiting faculty appointment. 
under the proposal for the downtown campus, APTA staff must, among other things, have board certification, maintain an active office within the geographic surface area of the downtown campus, be active in medical staff activities such as committee and department assignments, and agree to personally fulfill all responsibilities in providing inpatient consultations, emergency room consultations, and inpatient attending coverage. Associate staff are provisional, appointed for an initial term of two years, and can be appointed to active staff if board certified. If not, the provider is eligible for another three-year appointment to obtain board certification. Members of the associate staff also must maintain an active office within the downtown service area and treat patients at the downtown campus. Affiliate staff include practitioners who don't attend to inpatients at the downtown campus, but can refer patients there, visit them when they're hospitalized, and review their medical records. They can use the campus diagnostic facilities without limitation, but can't admit or treat patients at the campus and make medical record entries. Consulting staff include hospital-based specialists, not otherwise available on the medical staff, who are appointed for the specific purpose of providing on-site consultation in the diagnosis and treatment of patients. And honorary staff include those who were active staff for at least five years and who've retired from active practice from the downtown campus in good standing. The bylaws include a credentialing policy outlining the process for application, appointment, and reappointment to the UIHC Medical Center downtown medical staff. No individual staff shall be entitled to appointment to the medical staff or to the exercise of particular clinical privileges in the downtown campus only because he or she is licensed to practice and has a previous or current medical staff appointment or privileges at any hospital. UI Healthcare Medical Center downtown also would privilege advanced practitioners, advanced practice pre providers, such as physician assistants and advanced registered nurse practitioners, with a supervising physician maintaining full responsibility for the actions of the APP. Advanced practice providers who practice at UI Healthcare Medical Center downtown are permitted to practice only under the direct supervision of the physician that is designated as their supervising physician or is designated as their employing physician, according to Regent documents, which also says Mercy's four named departments won't, changed, won't change. Each department, medicine, surgery, maternal and child health, family practice, and emergency medicine will be led by a department head who will serve for two years. The new bylaws do not alter this structure according to Regent documents, but they do spell out a process for creating or dissolving departments. Bill allows families to monitor Iowa nursing home residents. Proposal comes amid abuse, neglect reports at facilities by Caleb McCullough. Families of nursing home residents would be allowed to monitor their rooms using cameras under a bill advanced Tuesday by Iowa lawmakers. The bill, House File 537, is intended to give family members greater ability to monitor the safety of their relatives in nursing homes, said Representative Joel Fry, one of the bill's sponsors. Fry, a Republican from Osceola, said the bill has been in development for years, but concerns about privacy and confidentiality have made it difficult to get it passed by lawmakers and signed into law. This bill has been worked on for a lot of years, and we're finally getting this bill to a place where everybody is coalescing around the bill, he said. Before monitoring by a security camera could begin, the bill requires a nursing home resident to consent unless he or she is deemed unable by a healthcare provider to understand the nature of the monitoring. If a resident is deemed unable to consent, the resident's representative, an attorney or legal guardian, would be able to consent for them. Roommates in a shared room also would need to consent if one resident agrees. If a roommate does not consent, the nursing home would have to work to accommodate the request by offering either of the residents a different room. The bill comes as Iowa nursing homes face heightened scrutiny after multiple reports in the last year 
of deaths, abuse, and neglect at long-term care facilities. In December, Iowa Senate Democrats called for oversight investigations into the state's nursing homes. Republicans, who control both chambers of the legislature, rejected that request and said there are already mechanisms in place to detect and prevent abuse at the facilities. According to a report from the U.S. Senate Special Committee on Aging, Iowa ranks 49th out of the 50 states in its ratio of nursing home inspectors to facilities. Ten Iowa nursing homes are listed as eligible for special oversight by the Federal Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Services, and two others are listed as special focus facilities. Fry said the increased attention on problems at Iowa's nursing homes puts a spotlight on the proposal, but that he thinks lawmakers would be moving ahead anyway, notwithstanding those reports of death, abuse, and neglect. Certainly, some of the issues that have happened across the state make this a much more heightened issue, he said. I think we'd be at this spot anyway, regardless of whether we had any of those issues popping up. We've been working on this a while. Lobbyists representing Iowa's nursing homes and health care providers said they were undecided on the bill and said they would like to work with lawmakers on the details as it moves forward. Representative Timmy Brown Powers, a Democrat from Waterloo, said she had concerns about who would be able to access the surveillance videos, how long the videos would be saved, and how to protect the privacy of roommates. I think we need to do something. I think doing nothing is not an option at this juncture, she said, but I do have some questions to make sure that we are giving the best care, the most dignity to these folks, and keeping people safe all at the same time. The proposal was passed unanimously by a subcommittee and next goes to the House Health and Human Services Committee. Iowa House Ways Bill That Would Loosen Topsoil Rules by Brittany Miller. Iowa House members gathered Tuesday to hear arguments for and against a bill that would loosen topsoil and stormwater regulations at construction sites. The bill, Senate File 455, would prohibit counties and cities from adopting regulations stricter than what the state permits for topsoil management at construction sites. It would also restrict the regulations local jurisdictions can place on the stormwater infrastructure required for new developments. Stormwater is the precipitation that runs off surfaces in urban areas and can lead to flooding, erosion, property damage, and poor water quality. The legislation was first introduced during the 2023 legislative session by Senator Scott Webster, Republican of Bettendorf. Webster owns Premier Custom Homes, Webster Properties, and Quad City Disposal, according to his campaign website, and is a former president of the Iowa Home Builders Association and Quad City Builders and Remodelers Association. He did not return a Gazette call for comment before publication. A House subcommittee recommended passage of Senate File 455 last Wednesday with a two-to-one vote. On Tuesday, the House's local government committee heard comments on the bill. Pete DeCock, assistant city manager of Clive, just west of Des Moines, highlighted the consequences of stormwater that's not properly managed. Almost 90% of surveyed professional engineers in Iowa reported seeing negative impacts from stormwater, such as flooding, erosion, property damage, and pollution, according to an Iowa State University study. Long-term maintenance and repair costs for stormwater infrastructure often fall to taxpayers. Those costs could grow if local jurisdictions aren't allowed to to cater their regulations to their stormwater management needs, DeCock said. The question about who pays when we're developing that infrastructure initially, whether it's for a development project or a redevelopment project, is very, very central to this discussion, DeCock said. It's about fairness, and especially fairness to the taxpayers, so we don't socialize those expenses to all of them. One way developers can mitigate stormwater runoff is by preserving topsoil at construction sites, said Tracy Peterson, a municipal engineer with the City of Ames. Senate File 455 would prohibit local jurisdictions from regulating how developers preserve, compact, or place topsoil 
during the construction process. Lost topsoil could mean homeowners may have to purchase more fertilizer, herbicides, irrigation, and vegetation for their properties. Peterson calculated that maintaining topsoil at construction sites would cost less than $1,000 per lot or less than $2,000 per lot if compost is added to replace topsoil. Topsoil is a really cost-effective way to meet stormwater management, he said. If topsoil is not provided, it actually puts that burden of the cost on the homeowners. Some municipalities are placing a disproportionate amount of responsibility for stormwater management and its costs on new development, said Dustin Miller, a lobbyist representing the Developers Council that includes the Home Builders Association of Greater Des Moines and the Home Builders Association of Iowa. National Association of Home Builders analyses found that regulatory costs, which include but are not limited to stormwater retention regulations, account for about a quarter of the cost for a single-family house and 40% of the cost for multifamily homes. Keeping such regulations may drive up the costs of affordable housing, Miller said. $1,000 here, 2000 there, that impacts how many people can afford a home, especially when you juxtapose that to inflation costs, he said. I think one of the difference of opinion is how much responsibility should the developer have in water retention. He also argued that Senate File 455 doesn't completely remove the ability for local jurisdictions to regulate stormwater runoff. There are still many more tools available, again, for all parcels not solely related to new development, he said. Caleb Smith, vice president of land development for Hubble Realty Company, added that early improper stormwater infrastructure may be contributing to the runoff effects seen today. But since then, requirements have improved and developers have adapted to those changes. It seems unfair it should fall solely on the shoulders of the developers to solve existing problems that are already within the community, Smith said. The Lynn County Board of Supervisors and cities of Cedar Rapids, Des Moines, and Coralville all declared against the bill. Bills would block minors' access to porn online by Tom Barton and Caleb McCullough. Iowa Republican lawmakers advanced a series of bills Tuesday intended to crack down on the distribution of obscene material to minors online. One would require social media companies to use age verification to restrict access to obscene material or face civil liability. Another would amend Iowa law dealing with the sexual exploitation of a minor to include artificially generated images. Lawmakers advanced House File 2051 that would require any commercial entity or social media platform that knowingly or intentionally publishes or distributes obscene material to minors on the Internet to verify the age of any user seeking to access that material. Those that do not could be held liable for damages, including court costs and reasonable attorney fees as ordered by the court. The bill provides an exception for online news services, applications, or websites that consist primarily of news, sports, entertainment, or other non-user-generated content. Representative Bill Gustoff, Republican of Des Moines, said lawmakers have drafted two or three bills that outline different approaches to prevent children from accessing pornography online. Lawmakers last session advanced but failed to approve limits on social media platforms for teens. Iowa teens under 18 would have been prohibited from using the platforms, sites like TikTok, Instagram, Snapchat, and Facebook, without approval from a parent or guardian. The measure advanced out of a House committee but failed to make it to the House floor. Gustav said House Republicans are switching tracks to something that's been tried in other states. Governor Kim Reynolds' office said it plans to introduce legislation to require age verification for online pornography websites similar to laws in Utah and Texas. The Utah law has raised questions about the First Amendment rights of young Americans that have led courts to strike down similar laws requiring age verification. It's all like a game of whack-a-mole, Gustav said. 
We're going to pass what we can, and then somebody will come up with some way to get around it a little bit, and then we'll have to come back and revisit it here and in other states. Chuck Hurley, legal counsel of the family leader, told lawmakers efforts to restrict minors' access to pornography in the digital age have not been successful. He read a statement from UNICEF, the United Nations agency responsible for providing, providing humanitarian and developmental aid to children worldwide, that says exposure to porn at a young age may lead to poor mental health, sexism, objectification, sexual violence, and other negative outcomes. House File 2051, however, refers specifically to social media and does not include other websites hosting pornography and other material harmful to minors. Representative Megan Srinivas, Democrat of Des Moines, said the, attention of, the intention of the law is important, but said the bill as worded was a bit too broad and worried about unintended consequences. Lawmakers also advanced a bill Tuesday that would enhance the penalties for providing or showing obscene material to a minor. The bill, House File 2046, would raise the penalty from a serious misdemeanor to an aggravated misdemeanor. Representative Jeff Shipley, Republican of Birmingham, the bill's sponsor, said during a subcommittee meeting Tuesday that federal charges for providing obscene materials to a minor are even more severe and Iowa's penalties should be increased. The purpose of this bill is just to augment that this is something we really need to take a serious look at and recognize the tangible harm that disseminating obscene material causes to the state of Iowa, he said. Lawmakers on the subcommittee were generally supportive. Representative Lindsey James, Democrat of Dubuque, noted the importance of protecting children and asked whether the increase in penalties would deter offenders. An aggregated, aggravated misdemeanor is punishable by up to two years in prison and a fine of up to $8,540. A simple misdemeanor is publisher, pu punishable by up to one year in prison and a fine of up to $2,560. Another bill advanced Tuesday would help the state's sexual exploitation laws adapt to artificial intelligence. Current law does not prohibit the creation or possession of child sexual abuse material or child pornography if the images are generated by artificial intelligence. House File 2049 seeks to close that loophole by stating pornography of children generated by AI is sexual exploitation. Mahaska County Attorney Andrew Ritland, who testified before a House subcommittee that advanced the bill, mentioned a case in which a man had manipulated an image to appear that a child who was his neighbor was involved in a sexual act. Under current law, it's exceptionally difficult to prosecute that type of case, Ritland said. And even though they're false images, they pose true harm both to adults and children, Ritland said. A separate bill, House File 2048, would make it illegal to disseminate digitally altered pornographic images, or deepfakes, of a person without their consent. Deepfake porn involves creating fake sexually explicit media using someone's likeness. Those who do so could be found guilty of first-degree harassment, an aggravated misdemeanor, punishable by up to two years in prison and an $8,540 fine. I think a clear legislative standard would benefit everyone to know what exactly is the line between a free speech, possession of an image, and one that's actually criminalized, Ritland said. Eastern Iowa Airport set passenger record, record in 23 by the Gazette. Breaking a record reached before the pandemic, passengers set a new high in 2023 for using the Eastern Iowa Airport. About 1.4 million total passengers chose the Cedar Rapids Airport in 2023, breaking the record of about 1.3 million total passengers set in 2019, the airport announced Tuesday. Airport Director Marty Lentz said in a statement that the driving force was related to an increase over the last year in flight options at the airport, known by the airport code CID. Three new destinations added in 2023, 
were Fort Lauderdale, Florida on Allegiant and Washington, D.C., and seasonal service to Miami on American Airlines. Last year, we saw three new nonstop destinations added to CID, Led said in the statement. With nonstop flights to 19 different locations, CID is providing travelers throughout eastern Iowa and the greater region the best option for business and leisure travel. Led says, in particular, the addition of Americans' nonstop service to Ronald Reagan Washington National Airport, known by the airport code DCA, was a game changer. We continue to see strong passenger numbers on this route. In fact, American has found peak times where they have added two daily flights, Led stated. We have many business people who use the flight to work in D.C., as well as those who understand DCA is a great way to connect to popular East Coast destinations. When the Eastern Iowa Airport recorded the 2019 passenger total, it had service to 13 nonstop destinations instead of today's 19. When airlines see passengers using the airport, it gives them more confidence in looking at adding flights to existing destinations and potentially service to new cities, Lentz said. Bill Lets Unsupervised Teens Care for Infants at Centers by Tom Barton. Iowa 16 and 17-year-olds would be able to care for younger children unsupervised at child care centers under a bill advanced Tuesday by state lawmakers. A House subcommittee advanced House File 2056, which would require the Iowa Department of Health and Human Services to amend its administrative rules to allow 16 and 17-year-olds to care for children up to five at child care centers without additional supervision, provided that at least two adults employed by the center are present. Currently, only one adult has to be in the facility where a minor is providing care to school-aged children. Lawmakers in 2022 passed and Governor Kim Reynolds signed legislation allowing child care centers the ability to hire 16 and 17-year-olds to work or substitute in their facilities without adult supervision as long as they're caring for school-aged children. Previously, child care workers had to be 18 to work unsupervised. The new law was designed by Republican lawmakers to address child care worker shortages. Critics have said it will not help as it does not contain any provision to help address child care workers' low wages and could create dangerous scenarios with unsupervised teens monitoring multiple toddlers. The bill advanced Tuesday would allow 16-year-olds and 17-year-olds to care for up to four infants by themselves in a classroom, up to seven two-year-olds, 10 three-year-olds, and 12 four-year-olds. The Health and Human Services Department was registered undecided on the bill. About 50% of licensed child care centers in the state surveyed, roughly 150 total, have chosen to hire 16 and 17-year-olds, to provide care to school-aged children unsupervised, according to the department. Proponents said the bill will help short-staff child care centers have more flexibility to fill gaps, allowing 16- and 17-year-olds to cover breaks and nap times and assist in the care of more children. This was brought to us by child care providers asking for us to allow this, not mandate it, simply allow it, said Representative Devin Wood, Republican of Newmarket, who chaired the subcommittee. Representative Austin-based Democrat of Des Moines declined to sign off on the bill. It passed the subcommittee on a 2-1 vote. Certainly, we have a workforce issue here, Bates said. Yes, we need to be innovative in how we improve our workforce, but we need to do it in a safe way. He noted choking is among the leading causes of unintentional death in children under five. You're going to ask a 16-year-old to stay off their phone and watch all kids and make sure they're not choking and be ready to do a Heimlich, Bates asked. I worry about that sort of thing. United Way of Central Iowa, which funds 15 nonprofit child care centers, is registered opposed to the bill. Infants and toddlers are the most challenging, intensive type of care, said David Stone with the organization. 
If you can imagine what a 16-year-old would be facing with up to four infants or a much larger number of toddlers, we're concerned about the safety of the kiddos, first and foremost. Additionally, Stone said advocates are trying to professionalize child care. We want that individual to have a good experience. We don't want them to burn out before they're even 18 years old and stay in the profession, he said. Third and final, some of our centers report because 16-year-olds would be unsupervised in the classroom providing care, they may struggle to gain liability insurance from their provider. So safety, workforce, and overall, there's other things and other innovative approaches we can take to address childcare workforce challenges. And we'll end our first half with a few items from the Capital Notebook section. Bill would require police to be U.S. citizens by the Gazette Des Moines Bureau. Iowa House Republicans advanced a measure Tuesday over the objections of Democrats and some of their members that would require Iowa law enforcement officers to be U.S. citizens. The bill provides that minimum entrance requirements to approved law enforcement training schools include that any law enforcement officer be a citizen of the United States. Current law requires Iowa law enforcement officers to be U.S. citizens and residents of Iowa or intend to become a resident upon being employed. Non-citizens must obtain a waiver to work as an officer. Sand finds disparities in property taxes. Wealthier areas of Iowa are likely to have a lower consolidated property tax levy compared to lower income areas, according to a report issued by Iowa Auditor Rob Sand. Sand's report suggests there is a statistically significant negative relationship between total property tax levies and the median household income of a city or township, meaning areas of the state with higher income levels are more likely to pay a lower property tax rate. For the report, Sands office related consolidated property tax rates in each of the state's roughly 4,100 taxing districts to a median household income using U.S. Census data. You are listening to the reading of the Cedar Rapids Gazette for Wednesday, January 24, 2024 on IRIS, the Iowa Radio Reading Information Service for the Blind. Now let's turn to today's obituaries. Ernest Cecil Tyson, Jr., 76, of Cedar Rapids, died Saturday, January 20th. The family will host a memorial service at 12 p.m. on Tuesday, January 30th at Christ Holiness Apostolic Temple, with Pastor Julie Goodlett officiating. Internment, Linwood Cemetery Mausoleum. Ernest Cecil Tyson, Jr. was born on January 24, 1947, in Pennsylvania, to Ernest and Barbara Burke Tyson. He married the love of his life, Rosetta Tyson, in August of 1998, and they remained married for 23 years until her passing in 2021. Ernest was a beloved member of Christ Holiness Apostolic Temple, where he loved to attend church and praise the Lord with all his heart. Not only did his love for people show his, to his church family, but also in the community. While in Cedar Rapids, Ernest worked in the Cedar Rapids Community School District as a math teacher. He also worked for the University of Iowa as a security guard. He loved to bowl and was active in bowling leagues and square dancing. He was a volunteer at St. Luke's Hospital, where his smile and personality brought comfort to many who were sick. He enjoyed community service and giving back to the community. He believed it is how he could give back some of the blessings that were given to him. Please share a memory of Ernest at MurdochFuneralHome.com. Judy Crawford, 64, of Cedar Rapids, passed away after a series of illnesses and health complications on January 13th. Judy was born on December 29, 1959, to loving parents Owen and Lois Mackey in Cedar Rapids, where she resided most of her life. Along with attending Kennedy High School, Judy furthered her education at Kirkwood College, where she developed a passion for helping others in need. Judy spent her career working with children at the Head Start program for over 20 years. 
she was kind, patient, dedicated, and compassionate in her work with children and their families. When Judy was not with her family, she enjoyed several hobbies, including puzzles, entertaining her cat, watching her pet fish, and going to the movies. The family sincerely appreciates your support during this difficult time and asks that you make contributions to her memorial fund on GoFundMe. A service without mass will be held at St. Pius X Parish on January 27th at 10 o'clock a.m. We welcome those who knew Judy and ask that she be in your thoughts and prayers. Vernon Wallace Wally Hootman, 79, of Cedar Rapids, passed away on January 18th. Visitation will be held on Monday, February 5th from 4 to 7 p.m. at Cedar Memorial Park Funeral Home. Services will be held on Tuesday, February 6th at 1 p.m. at Cedar Memorial Chapel of Memories. There will be a Masonic service performed at the end of the funeral service prior to dismissal for interment. There will be a graveside service and luncheon to follow at Cedar Memorial Family Center. Wally was born August 31, 1944 to Benjamin and Celeste Site Hootman in Keokuk. He married Janice Winteroud on August 22, 1964. Wally gave over 50 years of service to Rockwell Collins. He enjoyed hunting, fishing, billiards, golf, bowling, and barley pop. He was a great storyteller and masterful meat chef. Wally was a 45-year member of the FOE, CR Scottish Rite, and Mount Hermon Lodge 263. Memorials may be directed to Camp Courageous. Celebration of Life Gathering for Linda Jean Ferguson of Cedar Rapids will be held on Saturday, January 27th from 3 to 5 p.m. at Cedar Memorial Park Funeral Home. Inurnment will be at Cedar Memorial Park Cemetery. Linda died peacefully in her sleep on Sunday morning, January 21st. She is the daughter of Reverend Earl Ferguson and Luelma. She was a longtime educator. Linda loved traveling and learning throughout her life. She was very loved and will be missed. Online condolences are welcome at cedarmemorial.com. Richard S. Nelson, 91, of Cedar Rapids, passed away Thursday, January 18th. Visitation will be held from 5 to 8 p.m. at the Cedar Memorial Park Funeral Home on Friday, January 26th. A funeral service will be held at 11 a.m. on Saturday, January 27th at King of Kings Lutheran Church in Cedar Rapids. Burial will be at Cedar Memorial Park Cemetery with military honors. Visitation will begin at 9.30 a.m. at the church. He was born on October 23, 1932, son of Reuben and June Hines Nelson in Clayton County, and later moved to Cedar Rapids in 1947. He graduated from Franklin High School in June of 1951. On March 4, 1952, Richard enlisted in the U.S. Navy and served on the USS Toledo during the Korean War until February 27, 1956. Richard married his wife, Shirley Ann Johanningmeyer, on September 1, 1956, at Elkport Lutheran Church. Richard was a welder at Universal Engineering and was crowned king of the Allied Industrial League in 1958. November 1, 1961, he joined the Cedar Rapids Police Department and retired July 25, 1986. In lieu of flowers, memorials may be directed to King of Kings Lutheran Church or to the Dementia Society of America. Online condolences may be directed to the family at cedarmemorial.com. John Joseph Friesmeyer, 52, of Cedar Rapids, passed away peacefully, surrounded by his family on January 20th. A visitation will be held at 9 a.m. Friday, January 26th, until the time of the funeral mass, 11 a.m., at St. Elizabeth Ann Seton Catholic Church in Hiawatha. A private burial at Cedar Memorial Park Cemetery will be held at a later date. John was born November 2, 1971, in Fort Madison, to Delmer and Cheryl Mulahy Friesmeyer. He attended Marquette High School in West Point, Iowa. 
He graduated from the University of Iowa with honors in mechanical engineering in 1995 and earned his master's degree in engineering in 1997. John worked for TRW Automotive, Maytag, and Collins Aerospace. He was a skilled engineer and developed nine patents over his career, from airbags to refrigerators to cockpit displays. John married Michelle McDermott on May 22, 1999. They started their life together in Arizona, where Nathan was born in January 2002. They eventually moved back to Iowa, and Claire was born in February 2005. Their family enjoyed traveling, and they took frequent trips together. John's hobbies included golfing, flying his drone, and photography. Memorials may be made to John's family or the Dennis and Donna Oldorf Hospice House Fund. Given John's love for plants and trees, please consider planting a tree in his honor. Online condolences may be directed to the family at cedarmemorial.com. Ellen Marie Schmadeke, 91, of Solon, passed away at her home with her husband by her side on January 19th from complications of Parkinson's disease. Mass of Christian Burial will be celebrated on Tuesday, February 13th at 11 a.m. at St. Mary's Catholic Church in Solon with a luncheon to follow. Burial will be held at 2 o'clock p.m. at St. Joseph's Cemetery in Iowa City. Visitation will be held Monday, February 12th from 4.30 to 7 p.m. at Lensing Funeral Home and Cremation Service, Iowa City, with a rosary recited at 4 p.m. In lieu of flowers, memorial donations may be made to Iowa City Hospice. Ellen Marie McDonald was born on February 21, 1932, the daughter of Patrick R. McDonald and Matilda J. Mahoney. She attended school in Piasta, Iowa, and graduated from the local high school in 1950. Ellen married Charles J. Schmadeke on June 16, 1962, at St. Edward's Catholic Church in Waterloo. Ellen spent the early years of her marriage raising her children, and after they were in school, she returned to teaching. She taught second grade at Mark Twain School in Iowa City for 23 years, retiring in 1994. Ellen graduated from the University of Iowa with a degree in elementary education and a minor in music. She was also an avid student of liturgical music and liturgical music history, including Gregorian chant. Ellen chose the music, led the singing, and played the pump organ at St. Mary's Newport Church from the late 1970s until the church closed in 1994. Online condolences may be shared with her family at lensingfuneral.com. James Joseph Holmes of Tempe, Arizona, formerly of Cedar Rapids, passed away on December 27, 2023. James was born on February 20, 1984, in Dubuque, Iowa. James was an extremely loyal son and brother, the sweetest of uncles, and he had a loving, gentle heart. Life will not be the same without his wonderful, contagious laugh, his ability to organize family reunions, and his drive to keep his mother's holiday recipes alive. He attended Washington High School in Cedar Rapids and earned an Eagle Scout Award prior to graduation in 2002. James was a U.S. Army veteran who honorably served with the 10th Mountain Division, completing combat tours in both Iraq and Afghanistan. He returned from combat with compounding health issues, which he diligently attended to until his untimely passing. In his post-Army life, he was a lifelong learner with a 4.0 GPA at Mesa Community College. James enjoyed crazy spicy foods, cooking his specialty yakisoba noodles, polar plunges, off-roading, camping, Bob Marley music, attending heavy metal concerts, and survival prepping. He was the proud and fiercely protective owner of Quato, a.k.a. his son, an adorable Boston Terrier. Memorial services will be held at Oakland Cemetery in Iowa City on Saturday, April 27th at 11 a.m. Graveside military honors will be followed by a reception. Susan Mary Malecki, 69, of Coralville, died in her sleep on Sunday, January 14th at Brown Deer Place, Memo at Brown Deer Place 
memorial will be held at a later date. Susan was born on November 28, 1954, in Mount Clemens, Michigan, the daughter of George and Clara Belinsky Malecki. She grew up in Charleston, South Carolina. She graduated from James Island High School, College of Charleston, 1978, with a BA, University of Georgia, 1981, MA in Musicology, University of Iowa, Certificate in Sacred sacred music, and Ph.D. ABD in musicology. Susan, an avid reader and scholar of early music, lost her ability to read as a result of a stroke in October 2020. This necessitated retirement from her position as Library Assistant 3 at University of Iowa Libraries. She had been employed in the Rita Benton Music Library for 17 years and in interlibrary loan services for nine years. Those who worked with Susan will remember with respect her high level of intelligence, her laugh, and her wry sense of humor. She had a fierce love for felines, particularly those that came into her care. Donations in Susan's memory may be given to the RC, RSCM Scholarship Fund at Trinity Episcopal Church, UI Library Student Employee Scholarship Fund, or the Johnson County Humane Society. To share a thought, memory, or condolence with her family, please visit Gay and Chia Funeral and Cremation Service website at gayandchia.com. Adam McWhorter, 13, of Anamosa died Saturday, January 20th at University of Iowa Children's Hospital following a sledding accident on January 10th. A celebration of Adam's life will be held at 11 o'clock Thursday morning, January 25th at Antioch Christian Church in Marion, where friends may call after 9.30 that morning. Visitation will be held from 5 until 8 Wednesday evening, January 24th at the Lawrence Community Center in Anamosa. Pastor Jason Ishmael will officiate at the services. Interment will be in Riverside Cemetery, Anamosa. Getch Funeral Home, Anamosa, has taken Adam and his family into their care. Thoughts, memories, and condolences may be left at getchonline.com. Adam J. McCorder was born prematurely October 25, 2010, at St. Luke's Hospital, Cedar Rapids. Adam was a very curious as a little boy and loved to know how things worked. He loved his pets and was constantly by his sister's side. Adam was most recently a 7th grade student at the Anamosa Community School District, where he participated in football, basketball, archery, and running. He also loved to play golf, a skill he learned from his grandmother. He was his dad's favorite companion. Together, they enjoyed hunting, fishing, storm chasing, and observing the stars and sky. Adam was always curious and ready to explore all the world had to offer. He never met a snake, turtle, or toad that he didn't want to keep as a pet. He never met a Lego set he couldn't conquer. He aspired to become either an engineer or a paleontologist and had his sights set on attending MIT. That concludes today's obituaries. Moving on to the editorial page, there is one letter to the editor. It is from Patrick De Palma of Cedar Rapids. Headline reads, Biden's student debt forgiveness, a slap in the face. It is very frustrating to read that President Joe Biden has now forgiven $5 billion in student debt for 74,000 students. The debt was supposedly used for education. However, as we all know, there is no tracking of the funds and they can be used for housing and meals and books and so on. The principal reason for student loans is to enable someone to get an education so that they may secure gainful employment. If they are unable to repay the loans, that is their failure and shouldn't require federal government intervention. There is plenty of evidence that the loans were abused and used for other expenses not intended to be covered by the lenders. The government is absolutely sending the wrong message by bailing these people out. What's next, people who are struggling with credit card debt? The more the government is willing to supplement people's livelihood, the less likely they are to fend for themselves. Forgiving the debt is a slap in the face to all the parents and students who paid for their own education. 
the government is, in effect, rewarding failure. It seems like they want to punish success through higher taxes and reward failure with loan forgiveness. This needs to stop. Again, that is a letter from Patrick De Palma of Cedar Rapids in today's Gazette. Here is a guest column by Linda Chapman. It's titled, Tech Can Save Other Mothers from Grief. I see life differently since a drunken driver killed my daughter Nikki in 2004. It was nearly 20 years ago, but it feels like yesterday. If you've ever lost a loved one in an impaired driving crash, you have an inkling of the anger and utter emptiness I still feel. No mother should lose a daughter like I did. Part of myself was buried with Nikki. I can't turn back time to save my daughter, but I can give families out there hope that advanced auto safety technology will stop the scourge of impaired driving. That technology is required by the Halt Drunken Driving Act, a provision in the Bipartisan Infrastructure Investment and Jobs Act, passed by Congress and signed into law in November 2021. Thanks to that law, every new car could come equipped with advanced drunk and impaired driving prevention technology as early as 2026. Research shows this law can save 10,000 lives each year, according to the Insurance Institute for Highway Safety. Thankfully, my courageous U.S. Representative Zach Nunn, Republican of Iowa, recently voted to defend the law against misguided attempts to defund it. Losing Nikki didn't just break my heart, it broke my life. But despite the daily pain, I keep fighting because we desperately need allies to protect the HALT Act. Congress directed the National Highway Traffic Safety Administration to complete its drunken driving prevention technology rule, making rulemaking by November 25, 2024. We are now one step closer to getting this life-saving technology in all new cars, because on December 12th, the administration issued a call for public comments to inform the agency's approach to developing a safety standard for the technology. This milestone was the agency's first significant step toward ensuring all new cars will be equipped with passive technology. I will be forever grateful for a future with impaired driving prevention technology on all cars, and I'm sure the many victims and survivors across Iowa and the nation agree. Every 79 seconds, someone in the United States is killed or injured by an impaired driver. We've witnessed a staggering 35% surge in drunken driving fatalities over the past decade. Impaired driving has increased by 14% two years in a row and has caused 13,000 deaths for the first time since 2007. These deaths are 100% preventable. If impaired driving prevention technology had been in the vehicle of the man who killed my Nikki, she'd still be with me today. But this is not just a problem to be solved by people who have been impacted by impaired driving. This is a public health concern for all road travelers, and every Iowa citizen can help. Always choose a safe ride home before consuming alcohol or other impairing substances. In addition, tell elected officials in Congress to support passive technology on all new cars and urge NHTSA to meet the November 15th deadline to set a life-saving safety standard. Working together, we can save thousands of people from a terrible and preventable fate. Lynch Chapman is the mother of Nicole Nikki Chapman, who is killed by a drunk driver. Moving on to sports, here is the schedule for tonight's basketball games for Iowa teams. Men, Maryland, 11-8-3-5 at Iowa, 11-7-3-4 at Carver-Hawkeye Arena in Iowa City. Tip-off at 6 p.m. TV on Big Ten Network. Kansas State, 14-4-4-1 at number 23 Iowa State, 14-4-3-2 at Hilton Coliseum in Ames, tip-off at 8 p.m., TV on ESPN2. Women's teams, Iowa State 12-5-6-1 at Kansas, 9-9-2-5. Allen Fieldhouse, Lawrence, Kansas, tip-off at 6.30 p.m., streaming on ESPN+. 
Continuing with our basketball theme, here is the article today about Iowa State men's basketball. Number 23 Cyclones could be without Lipsy again tonight, but ISU did just fine without star point guard on Saturday, by Rob Gray. Iowa State not only survived but thrived in its first game without standout point guard Tam and Lipsy. But can the number 23 Cyclones do that again if the Ames native must also sit out today's 8 p.m. home men's basketball game against Kansas State on ESPN2 because of a sprained shoulder? Who knows? But ISU, 14-4-3-2, Big 12, proved in Saturday's 73-72 win at then number 19 TCU it can succeed if, Lippi, if Lipsy's brief absence morphs into a slightly extended one. If anything was shown on Saturday, it's the depth and the character of the other guys, said Cyclone head coach T.J. Otzelberger, whose team seeks to beat the Wildcats, 14-4-4-1, for the second straight time at Hilton Coliseum. So we've got to do what's best for him, regardless of what's coming at us. But right now, all of our focus is on the opportunity we have tomorrow night. ISU will enjoy a prime chance to climb the conference standings, whether Lipsy plays or not. The Cyclones are locked into a four-way tie for fourth place in the Big 12. Kansas State, which is 5-0 in overtime games this season, is tied for first with Texas Tech. The Wildcats lost three starters from last season's Elite Eight team and turned to season transfers, such as Tyler Perry, North Texas, and Arthur Kaluma, Creighton, to help fill those vacancies. The guys they brought in have come from winning programs, Otzelberger said. The guys they brought in have a history of being successful, and I think as a coach, when you see guys that have won and done things well at previous stops, it gives you confidence that they can continue to do it at your place, and that's certainly been the case for their program. And that does it for today's reading of the Cedar Rapids Gazette for Wednesday, January 24th, 2024. I'm your reader, Janet Griffith. You can access a recording of today's reading on our website, iowaradioreading.org, anytime. Thanks for listening.
in the People's Pharmacy Health Headlines. At high doses, non-steroidal anti-inflammatory drugs like diclofenac, ibuprofen, or naproxen may increase the risk of kidney problems. The study that revealed this used de-identified medical records of more than 750,000 active-duty U.S. Army soldiers. Consequently, these were active, young, and middle-aged adults. During the time of the study, from 2011 through 2014, nearly 18% of these soldiers got a prescription for one to seven doses of an NSAID pain reliever in a month. Another 16% were prescribed more than seven doses in a month. Fewer than 1% of these people were subsequently diagnosed with acute or chronic kidney disease. Nevertheless, the rate of kidney trouble was about 20% higher among people who had received high-dose NSAIDs than among those who had taken none. The authors described the increased risk as modest but statistically significant. Another class of drugs that can lead to kidney injury is proton pump inhibitors. A data mining initiative of the FDA's Adverse Event Reporting System analyzed kidney-related side effects among 43,000 people who took a drug such as esomeprazole, lansoprazole, or omeprazole. Approximately 8,000 people taking a histamine 2 blocker such as ranitidine or famotidine served as controls since they take these drugs for similar symptoms. The researchers found that 5.6% of people on PPIs alone had a kidney-related side effect, while only 0.7% of those on H2 blockers did. Chronic kidney disease was 28 times more likely, and acute kidney injury was four times more likely among people taking PPIs. While this analysis shows association, not causation, there are previous studies linking PPIs and kidney damage. There's growing concern about a mysterious infectious disease that has been spreading among the wild deer population for decades. Scientists call it CWD, or chronic wasting disease. Hunters refer to this condition as zombie deer disease. It can also affect elk and moose. The CDC reports that this infectious disease has spread to wildlife in 24 states and two Canadian provinces. CWD was first detected in Colorado among captive deer in the 1960s and in the wild deer population in the 1980s. It's now affecting deer in the Midwest, Southwest, and some parts of the East Coast. The disease appears to be caused by a prion infection reminiscent of mad cow disease. An infectious disease expert at the University of Minnesota has warned that hunters who eat contaminated deer meat may eventually develop the human equivalent of chronic wasting disease. Shoulder replacement surgery is becoming increasingly common. Now researchers writing in the BMJ say that patients should be warned that the risks are higher than originally thought. The investigators reviewed hospital and mortality records in the UK, when men between 50 and 59 have this type of shoulder surgery, one in four will need further surgery on that shoulder within five years. In addition, older people who underwent this kind of surgical procedure experienced high rates of serious adverse events. One in nine older women and one in five older men had an infection, major blood clot, heart attack or stroke, or died within three months. The authors of the study encouraged their colleagues to counsel patients about the risks as well as the benefits of this kind of surgery. Drug interactions are a serious hazard in hospitals and the community. 
If patients receive prescriptions for incompatible medications, they can experience severe side effects that may even be life-threatening. Electronic medical records are intended to warn prescribers and pharmacists about potentially dangerous interactions, but many do so indiscriminately. The result is something called alert fatigue. If clinicians receive too many warnings, they may not pay attention to the really important ones. A team at St. Jude Children's Research Hospital reviewed their alert system. They removed unnecessary alerts and provided additional information to the most important ones. After they finished, they tracked clinicians' reactions. Alert overrides dropped by 40%. One important change linked alerts to the patient's laboratory data, making them much more targeted. And that's the health news from the People's Pharmacy this week.